When we think about religion in American politics today, we tend to think of conservative figures like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, or maybe a politician like, for example, Sarah Palin. But just a few decades ago, President Truman called American Protestants the shock forces pushing the United Nations, social change, and economic justice. How did we get from there to the present day? What caused the rise of liberal Protestantism as a major force in American politics in the mid-century, and how much of that remains with us today? Today we're going to be talking with Gene Zubovich, who's a six-year graduate student at UC Berkeley, whose research focuses on modern American liberalism. His dissertation, entitled The Global Gospel, Protestant Internationalism, and American Liberalism, 1940-1960, was completed in May 2014. His dissertation explores the roles of religion in the and the rise of American liberalism in the 20th century. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Doug. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about a scene that's not quite as far away from the present as some of the episodes that we've had so far. You know, just last time we talked about uh, Charlemagne the Great and his dealings with Vikings. Today we're talking about the 1940s and 50s, and I think a lot of us feel like we have a pretty good idea of, of sort of the picture, if only sort of a leave it to beaver pop culture idea of, of what's going on at this time. Uh, maybe you could give us a little bit of shading anyway, though, because I suspect that's not quite how things were playing out in every, every sort of way. What was religion like in America in the 1930s, 1940s, leading into uh, the period we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Um, so the, the thing to understand about American religion, since about the late 19th century, there's been more or less a two-party system in American religion and American Protestants. So on the one hand, we have a group we're familiar with today, uh, evangelicals, uh, who are the denominations like Southern Baptists and Pentecostals. Um, and many of these denominations tend to uh, support conservative policies and conservative politicians. Now, on the other hand, we have what historians call uh, ecumenical Protestants. Um, so these are groups like the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, the United Church of Christ, and many of them tend to support liberal policies. So today, I think we primarily think of Protestants as a conservative group. Um, and that's been largely true since about the 1970s. But in the 1930s, 1940s, going into the 1950s, it was the opposite. It was mostly ecumenical Protestants who were in charge. Um, and it wasn't that there weren't any conservatives around. It wasn't that there weren't evangelicals around at the time. There were, and there were lots of them. But the people who were most prominent, the people who were uh, leading universities, who were meeting with business leaders and presidents, uh, they primarily came out of uh, ecumenical denominations. And on top of that, it wasn't just that the most prominent religious leaders at the time uh, came from these ecumenical denominations. It's also that most people who were in charge of just about anything uh, came from these denominations. So that includes business. It also includes the presidents. So uh, Woodrow Wilson, for example, was a Presbyterian. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was an Episcopalian. And, and you can go on and on and on. If you were in charge of something big in that era in the 1930s, 1940s, odds are you were an ecumenical Protestant. So just out of curiosity, uh, if you happen to know, I know today there's an awful lot, um, I guess, disproportionate Supreme Court representation relative to the population, mostly mm -hmm. uh, Catholic and Catholics and Jews, yes. uh, when most of the country, I believe, still identifies as Protestant. Mm -hmm. uh, is that the case in the, in the legal system at the time as well? Uh, so no, that's a relatively recent uh, post-war development. So again, um, and the Supreme Court included, if you were a politician, there were, of course, lots of Catholic politicians, to a lesser extent Jewish politicians, but uh, most people who were in charge of big things, including the Supreme Court, uh, came from an ecumenical Protestant background. Mm -hmm. uh, do you happen to know 
were were other religions involved in politics heavily in the 30s and 40s as well? Jews, Catholics. Um, I guess there probably wouldn't be quite so many Buddhists in America at the time. But. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, of course, uh, Jews and Catholics have always always been involved in politics. Um, Jews, of course, are a uh, small but disproportionately uh, influential group in American politics who also uh, pushed for left-leaning uh, policies. Of course, their size um, makes them, uh, you know, uh, important and relevant uh, group. But in a sense, you know, when ecumenical Protestants do something because they represent millions upon millions of Americans and they're so tied into the American political and business and cultural establishment, um, that really matters. Um, and, and same thing for Catholics. Catholics have a more... Um, uh, let's say, ambivalent relationship with liberalism, at least in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, so you have Catholics going both ways. On the one hand, they're very much involved in some of the labor movements. On the other hand, um, some of their most prominent public leaders during the 1930s, like Charles Kaufman, are promoting um, more conservative policies. So they have, at least in that era, in the 1930s and 40s, more of a mixed record in the mm -hmm. kinds of things we'll be talking about today. So how about the other side of this religion and politics equation? What, what are the religious, or sorry, what are the political issues that people are talking about in the 30s and 40s? So we're after World War One, a little bit farther along. We're not yet to World War Two. Mm -hmm. uh, what are what are sort of the fault lines of the day? What are what are the issues that the parties are debating uh, that these that these religious folks will get um, involved in? Sure, of course, this is a complicated era with a bunch of different things that people are debating. But the, really the big thing comes about in the 1930s. That's how do you respond to the Great Depression. And this is the time period when the word liberal more or less comes to mean what it does today. right? Somebody who, um, who supports using uh, the federal government to rationalize and regulate the economy, to expand to some extent at least the social welfare state. And there, of course, this is most famously proposed by uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, in his New Deal. And there are, of course, opponents to that. So that becomes the first critical fault line uh, in that era. By the 1940s, uh, race relations and segregation uh, becomes much more of an issue uh, for some of these liberal groups. But it really begins in the 1930s with economic policy. Okay, uh, so th this term liberal, you say, is, is basically the same that we mean today, which is, which is useful uh, for our help. Uh, I understand the parties are probably a little bit differently aligned at the time. What do the, what do the parties stand for? That's right. Yeah, so um, so the party is very complicated. Uh, what most people conclude about uh, the Democrat, Democratic Party um, in the 1930s going into the 1940s and 1950s is that what is called the New Deal Coalition. These are a uh, constituency brought together by Franklin Roosevelt. Um, most historians agree that it's kind of a hodgepodge of ideologies. So, uh, so while you have uh, labor leaders and African Americans giving support uh, to um, to Franklin Roosevelt, you also have uh, Southern segregationists and white supremacists who are also giving him support. Um, so it's a this New Deal coalition uh, which dominates politics uh, from the 30s through the 60s is important but complicated and deeply troubled. At the same time, the Republican Party is not nearly as conservative as we think of it today. Uh, there are quite a few uh, liberals, especially uh, racial liberals, uh, people who are willing to challenge segregation beginning in the 40s and 50s, um, and people who are more moderate. Um, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower is one of these people who uh, takes a moderate stance on economic policy, and during the 1950s, during what is otherwise a conservative era, 
um, you have the expansion of government, you have the expansion of the welfare state, social security gets expanded. Um, so it's, it's a bit more complicated in terms of, um, in terms of the party alignment during this time period. Mm -hmm. So in the 1930s and 40s, you write about a Protestant internationalism. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, uh, so internationalism, I guess I should start by saying that to some extent, all religions are international, right? A Catholic from Argentina and a Catholic uh, from Germany are part of the same uh, religious community. And that's true for Protestants as well. Uh, but on the other hand, Protestants since the Reformation start um, fracturing and breaking apart into smaller and smaller units. Uh, so a good example of this in the United States is right before the Civil War. Uh, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, um, uh, the Baptists, they split along northern and southern lines uh, over the issue of slavery and over the issue of the Civil War. So they're fracturing and splitting apart. Now what begins to happen around 1900 or so um, is sort of three ideologies, um, theological liberalism, the social gospel, and most importantly, ecumenism, are pushing Protestants, um, what I'm calling ecumenical Protestants, uh, towards reconciling and reunifying. So the best example of this is in 1908, the Federal Council of Churches, which becomes the biggest religious body in the United Nations by the middle of the 20th century, uh, gets created. Um, about two years later, 1910, the modern international ecumenical movement uh, gets created, trying to bridge boundaries between Protestants uh, across national divides. And after World War II, this turns into the World Council of Churches. So what's happening is a kind of a reversal of, um, of the uh, Reformation uh, over the course of the 20th century. Now, while this is um, uh, still a uh, fractious uh, community, there are people who disagree uh, quite widely about theological questions. What they find more and more is they're able to work together uh, with one another on practical concerns, on political concerns. And they find that their unity, which takes a really long time um, to create, right? getting over barriers of theology, getting over barriers of race and nation, uh, these are hard things to accomplish. What they find is that their political unity is much stronger than their theological unity. I, I would guess that communication is still still pretty, pretty slow relatively in these times. Obviously, there's no internet to send these sort of uh, things around, no sort of quick uh, network building like we maybe have today. So when we say internationalism, it, are, are we actually talking about communication between you know, Protestant groups in the U.S. and their, their colleagues in the U.K. and China and all around the world? Yeah, so there's some of that. We do have the telegraph. We have letters, uh, which, of course, take a, a long time to get across the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, we, have, we do have forms of communication like that that are taking place increasingly between these different people. Uh, but the most important thing for the kind of creation of unity are conferences. People will every once in a while, uh, depending on which organization, it could happen every four years, every year, every 10 years, um, getting together and talking to one another. One of the things that happens on an international level is that um, this begins as kind of a Euro-American affair, right? It's a bunch of Americans, uh, uh, Britons, uh, French, uh, Germans are there, but increasingly there are Koreans, Chinese, and later on people from Africa right? that bring people into a common conversation. Interesting. So it's no surprise that World War II changed a lot of things about the United States. We don't really think about it changing the role of religion in politics, of all things. 
but your research tells a different story. I mean, what sort of impact did the Second World War have on this liberal Protestant coalition and how it, in, how it got impacted politics of the day? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. Um, the big thing that we have to understand about World War II is the importance of uh, creating a world government for these Protestant leaders. So even before America actually enters World War uh, II, uh, people like John Foster Dulles, the future Secretary of State, and other leading Protestant figures are getting together and they're trying to create some kind of a plan for, um, uh, for creating a world government. Now, they don't know exactly what that's going to mean um, and how it's going to be shaped. It will eventually lead them to support the United Nations and the Human Rights Charter uh, and other sort of prominent markers of uh, international politics of, uh, of World War II. Um, so they start this early and they get really into it. So uh, during World War II, they are popularizing the United Nations. They're popularizing uh, internationalism. So they have rallies. They have uh, a bunch of senators and congressmen, along with the religious leaders, go to over 100 towns across the country uh, and have these rallies. The Methodist Church, who's one of the biggest proponents of this uh, broader movement that I call the World Order Movement, um, they are... Uh, visiting all 40,000 of their churches and telling people to write letters to their, uh, to their political leaders. They're uh, changing church curriculum to, um, for about 3.2 million adults right, to study international issues. So the interesting thing is while all of this is going on, while there's this broad, enthusiastic support for the United Nations, you also have uh, the expansion of other forms of uh, political engagement. So especially um, economic reform becomes a really big issue and overwhelmingly anti-racism becomes a goal. That's kind of complicated how this happens. On the one hand, uh, people who, were pre who had for a long time been really concerned about um, the state of African-Americans in the South, let's say, um, they are all of a sudden empowered with a new rhetorical tool. You can't have um, world peace and a global government if you continue to have segregation. Uh, in the United States. That's one of the ways in which uh, anti-racist activists get empowered during World War II. Another way is somebody like uh, Thelma Stevens, who had anti-racist commitments all throughout the 1920s and 1930s. She is all of a sudden going to be put in charge of um, these programs, these rallies, this curricula during World War II. And uh, she's getting unprecedented resources. And of course, she's interested in um, uh, you know, promoting the United Nations and world peace, but she's also interested in using these resources to promote anti-racism and these kinds of values. So does she get put in charge because of that or coincidentally, and then that's what she's able to push? So uh, a little of both. Um, the, mostly what happens is both on a denominational level, so she's a Methodist um, and she represents uh, several million Methodist women, um, but usually for both the denominations and for these interdenominational groups and uh, local councils of churches, the people who um, are running the institutions that are in charge of this kind of mobilization tend to be self-selected. They're the most interested in politics. They're the most interested in um, the social gospel tradition. They're the most interested in um, um, you know, the, the politics of the day. Um, so they've always been left-leaning mm -hmm. um, to some extent. Now what's new about World War II is that this uh, these institutional changes and this enthusiasm about the world order movement will actually empower them, mm -hmm. you know, really for the first time. So just to step back uh, in time a second, 
obviously the League of Nations was an attempt at sort of the UN before the UN. Mm-hmm. Did you see the same push by uh, liberal Protestant groups um, at, at that time, or was this more of a, a later development that was only able to push for the UN? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, so there was a lot of division between American Protestantism at the time that the League of Nations was getting created. Politics weren't quite as much of a dividing line at that time. Theology was a really big deal. This is just before the Scopes trial. This is just before these kinds of theological civil wars are going to take place in denominations like uh, Presbyterianism um, between fundamentalists and uh, what are called modernists or theological liberals. So at that time, you didn't have quite the same attention to politics. And the reason is, is because the fault lines are really around theology. Um, so what you had is less of a concern for politics. So the kinds of uh, you politics weren't primary in that era. What was really important was um, finding allies who were going to support your theological position at the time. Um, now there were lots of liberal Protestants who did, in fact, support uh, World War One. Many of them became enthusiastic uh, on behalf of Woodrow Wilson's campaign. Um, many of them would be enthusiastic about the League of Nations, and many of them would be disillusioned in the wake of their kind of patriotism they showed during uh, World War I. So what happens by the 30s is they get very disillusioned. They're still interested in world peace, but many of them start turning to pacifism and see their kind of patriotic rhetoric during World War I um, as antithetical to bringing about world peace. So by the time we get to World War II, um, they're a little bit more cautious about aligning themselves with the state. They're going to be a little bit more critical uh, of the government. On, on that track, uh, could you talk a little bit about the resistance that they, they showed to Japanese internment? You, you don't hear a lot uh, about the people who fought against that uh, at the time. It's sort of a story in at least the high school history books that I was taught of just this, this happened, um, terrible story, but not a lot of resistance at the time. But you, you point out some people who were fighting back against this. That's right, yeah. So uh, that story is actually largely true. Uh, historians more or less agree that for the most part, liberals, even the Socialist Party, didn't do very much about Japanese internment. So these ecumenical Protestants are a um, exception to the rule, really. So a lot of them, um, when we talk about the tributaries, right, why did, um, why did certain Protestants get involved in anti-racist um, activism? For, for protesting internment, a lot of these people came from, um, from uh, institutions that had to do with missionary work. So many of these people were born in China or Japan to missionary parents. Uh, some of them had worked abroad for many years. Um, so one of these people, um, uh, Galen Fisher, for example, was a, a, um, a missionary in Japan for a long time. He starts the Fair Play Committee. Um, and there are a number of uh, these individuals, many of whom, um, many of whom feel deeply transformed by their missionary experience and bring that back to the United States with them. And they will uh, first protest the policy of internment, and later, once internment actually occurs, they'll switch their tactics and they'll start trying to um, find ways to move Japanese people, Japanese Americans, out of internment camps say, to the Midwest or to the East Coast to resettle them. And later on, they'll be very much involved in, um, uh, in uh, you know, trying to help them rebuild their communities on the West Coast once World War II is over. Mm-hmm. So it, the same sort of anti-racial, anti-racist activism uh, then follows through into the early 
civil rights um, era. But is this a story of mostly northern Protestants, and so it's more of sort of a regional story, uh, or, or is it a different type of story entirely where we have southern Protestants who are also fighting against uh, you know, Jim Crow and, and seg uh, racial segregation? Yeah, so the fault lines do matter. So the Federal Council of Churches that I repeatedly uh, allude to was primarily, and this is not, not entirely true, but primarily a northern and western phenomenon. So the real base of their power uh, came not from the South, but from the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West. Now, on the one hand, that makes it a little bit easier to uh, fight segregation. Uh, it empowers them because they don't have a large Southern constituency to answer to. Now, there are, of course, Southerners in, in, um, who are members of the Federal Council of Churches. The Southern Presbyterians, for example, join uh, during World War II, and they're going to um, chafe a lot, a lot of the more political programs that the Federal Council of Churches tries to implement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but primarily, these are Northerners, and they don't have this, the kinds of policies that they're putting forward, the political ones especially, won't have the same kind of consequences for them and their constituency. Now, on the other hand, it makes it a lot harder for the Federal Council of Churches to really do something about uh, Jim Crow, at least, right, the Southern form of segregation. It makes it harder for them to actually um, create some sort of mechanism to undo it. So how important were these, these groups, uh, these liberal Protestant groups, in the civil rights movement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, I, I would say fairly important. They're important in a couple of different ways. Uh, number one is that pretty early on they get involved politically in a kind of a traditional way. So they start filing lawsuits, um, many of which would lead to the Brown versus Board decision, and they uh, cooperate actively with um, the NAACP and other groups. They raise funds for them. Uh, they lobby on behalf of uh, Fair Employment Practices Commission, which is meant to protect African-American workers. And they're doing a ton on the local and state level, too. So a lot of these national uh, propositions become failures. Uh, a Fair Employment Practices Commission doesn't get passed in the 40s or 50s, but it does at some, in some states. Um, they're also uh, very active at the local level against housing restrictions. That's a very big issue for them. So they're doing a lot in this sort of traditional political work. But what happens is, is especially um, after Brown versus Board of Education, their first strategy had been to try to desegregate their churches. They're doing all this political work, but really they want Southern churches to accept um, African-Americans uh, into white congregations, right? An open door church is what they would call it. And what happens is after Brown versus Board of Education, there becomes, uh, there develops increasing resistance to this. Um, so afterwards, they shift their focus a little bit to really educating students. And many of these students um, who don't think of themselves as particularly political, um, this becomes their first major political outlet. They're going to these interracial meetings, they're hearing Martin Luther King Jr., this is in the late 50s, speak out about the evils of, um, of uh, segregation. They're listening to Jim Lawson give them um, advice on nonviolent resistance. So by the time, um, by the time the sit-ins start in 1960, these politicized young people are going to take part disproportionately in the civil rights movement. They're going to be one of the main uh, white allies uh, for African Americans um, in, you know, in working for their freedom. At the same time, the National Council of Churches, which is the renamed version of the Federal Council of Churches, will be really important in uh, 
political lobbying and rallying um, support for the Civil Rights Act and other really important landmarks mm -hmm. of the 1960s. Uh, so I guess that raises the question of what are the demographics of these of these groups we're talking about? Are they are they mostly are they entirely white? Are are they mostly sort of um, I, I guess mostly men making these decisions, or do women have any sort of play in this as well? I mean, how, what are how can we break down these groups? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the higher you go uh, in these um, in these institutions, when you go from the local level to the state level to the denominational level, to the interdenominational level, like the Federal National Council of Churches, uh, you, get, you become increasingly uh, white and male. So at the very top, the leaders up until the 60s and 70s who are making most of these decisions tend to be uh, primarily white, male, white men who usually were born into privileged families, They're extremely educated. Almost all of the characters they talk about were either you know, prominent politicians or lawyers, or they had PhDs or THDs and, uh, from one of the leading seminaries or one of the leading universities in the country. So they are um, disproportionately white and male, which makes the question of why do they, why does this group, um, economically privileged, uh, white and male, um, turn increasingly towards uh, anti-racism and towards, um, uh, you know, economic justice uh, human rights and these other issues. Yeah, I mean, so w w how, how do you answer that? How do you get yeah. from, you know, I, I, I grew up in Virginia and I know there's a lot of sort of, I, I guess guilt might be the term, you know, a lot, a lot of, you know, white high school kids looking to find the good guys in mm -hmm. history and, and most of what you have to learn is that for the most part African Americans mm -hmm. were able to you know, drive most of these efforts themselves, but there were still some contributions by these, these these white allies. You say, where are these white allies coming from? I mean, I guess they're northern and western. You said so that frees them up a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't entirely explain it. You're still going against sort of the grain of society at the time. Yeah. So a lot of the answer has to do with um, ecumenism. So this idea of breaking down. Uh, international boundaries and racial boundaries. I mentioned one of the tributaries to the uh, civil rights movement. It's uh, missionaries who are going to go out into the world, or these people who are meeting in these international meetings with, you know, Korean nationalists, uh, Chinese nationalists, and others. They're going to go out into the world, and they're going to uh, meet people who are different from them, and they're going to become increasingly cosmopolitan. Uh, they're going to become increasingly tolerant and uh, and pluralistic as a result. So that's one of the mechanisms by which this happens, uh, as one of the tributaries is the missionary movement and the international ecumenical experience. The other one is a kind of a more local ecumenical experience, especially after the Civil War. A lot of um, Protestant organizations are going to start um, churches and universities and schools for African Americans in the South. So these begin as forms of charity. Um, uh, and are meant to alleviate you know, the, the worst of the economic plight for African-Americans, to give them access to education and, and some self-control. But over time, these institutions, by the 30s, by the 40s, will turn increasingly towards social justice. Um, so it's not enough just to give out charity or you want to get at the root causes of African-American poverty, which they increasingly see as uh, segregation. So why do these... Um, uh, you know, white privileged men increasingly turn towards, um, you know, helping uh, racial minorities. So 
international ecumenism and these southern benevolence institutions uh, provide the kind of experiences, the kind of um, you know meeting and mingling with people who they otherwise wouldn't meet and talk to. Um, this forms the basis of their experience that informs their uh, struggle for civil rights. So that, that's sort of the, the wealthy white male leadership. Who else, does that reflect the population of the churches primarily as well, or do you get more diversity in who's acting at the, at the sort of more local level? Yeah, so of, of course uh, there is quite a bit of diversity, and I should mention that, um, so in 1946, uh, when Harry Truman calls on the shock forces of American Protestantism at this meeting uh, in Columbus, uh, the Federal Council of Churches becomes the first um, large Protestant organization to clearly renounce segregation. Before they talk about anti-prejudice and getting along with you know with other people, but this is the first time in 1946 that any large Protestant group says um, no to segregation unequivocally. Right, this is a bad policy. We need to start dismantling it now. When we're talking about uh, these going against sort of the grain society, that's. That's easy to say. It becomes increasingly difficult to do in the realities of the sort of Cold War and paranoia about the Reds mm-hmm. and, and you know socialist uh, infiltrators and this and that and McCarthyism and all this all this piling on, pushing back against the cha- forces of social change at the time. Uh, how does that play into your story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. So, um, so a lot of uh, a lot of what's going on during world war ii this world order movement this unity around the united nations and the increasing prevalence of these other rhetorics anti-racism anti-imperialism anti-poverty programs Um, this is a real moment of unity for american protestantism even a lot of the evangelical denominations are on board uh, with this so evangelicals like carl henry are looking enviously at this um, program and are going to be modeling their own programs later on on what the ecumenical Protestants are doing. Um, Southern Baptists are more or less going along with the world order movement. Um, So what happens is that during World War II, um, ecumenical Protestants form a series of commitments to, you know, a broad set of liberal values. And it's relatively uncontroversial. Nobody's really speaking up against this during World War II because the UN is such a big thing. Everybody seems to support it. Now, when the Cold War starts, these ecumenical Protestants are going to hang on to these values, right? Hang on to the value of creating an international government and supporting uh, human rights. They're going to stay consistently for anti-racism and expansion of the welfare state. Now, over time, these things will become increasingly controversial. And what they're get, what's going to happen is that um, they're going to be attacked by the more conservative members of their constituency. Now, one of the things we talked about was, um, you know, who are these people at the very top of the Federal Council of Churches? You know, they're white, male, wealthy. Um, now, that, uh, not the male part, but uh, the white and wealthy is disproportionately true for many of these denominations, right? So Episcopalians are sort of known as being... Um, kind of a economic elite of this country. And the same is true for Congregationalists and many of the other groups I described. They tend to be disproportionately wealthy. So the kinds, especially the kinds of economic programs, um, the expansion of the welfare state, putting many of these um, sort of activists who are putting um, their denominations on record in support of, say, an expansion of Social Security, this will become deeply controversial. And they're going to be attacked in the late 1940s and early 1950s by their more con- conservative members. 
And one of the things that happens is you get kind of a splitting apart of Protestantism. Um, no longer are theological issues the big wedges uh, for many of these uh, groups. Uh, people who are um, conservative members of these churches, conservative laymen, are going to increasingly um, speak in political terms, and they're going to rebel politically against the leadership of these denominations. Hmm. So I, I've read at least a good bit about uh, the FBI investigating civil rights groups. Do you have to know if, it's civil, if the FBI and these other sort of uh, McCarthyist forces are sort of lining up against or at least investigating these groups, or is there sort of wealth and, and privilege able to sort of push off some of that? Sure. So we do know that, um, that the FBI does go after um, the Methodist Federation for Social Action, which is one of the more left-leaning ones. We have documentation of them going after them. Uh, we do know that the FBI, especially J. Edgar Hoover, will start publishing articles in evangelical periodicals about celebrating Americanism and patriotism. Uh, we also know that at a certain point, um, there's a guy named J.B. Matthews who works for McCarthy in the McCarthy Committee, who um, in 1953, right after the Korean War, uh, publishes an article called Reds in Our Churches. Hmm. And this becomes a deeply controversial thing. He says that the churches are on the f front lines of communism in the country, right? They, more than anybody else, are, uh, are doing um, uh, you know, the work of the Communist Party. Um, and this becomes extremely controversial. And this is actually one of the first moments where McCarthy um, really gets attacked in a substantial way. And J.B. Matthews, who McCarthy defends, is eventually forced to resign. And many people who've documented McCarthyism uh, see this as the kind of the first moment where before McCarthy goes after um, you know, the military, where he's really seen as vulnerable and this empowers his critics uh, later on. So there is a sense in which, yes, many of these, um, many of these church leaders uh, do get attacked by uh, the right, by the anti-communist right in this country, but they do seem, at least by the, you know, by 1953, 1954, uh, to really be holding their own and mm -hmm. to be able to defend themselves because of their status and stature. So status and stature are clearly important. How, how much, how many people are we talking about? Do you have an idea of just more or less what percentage of America are involved in, in these Protestant churches at this point? I mean, even ballpark? Sure. Um, so there are different estimates. This is actually quite uh, contentious. I've seen estimates as low as 17% of the population. I've seen estimates as high as half the voting age population in the United States. Um, the Methodist Church, one of the biggest uh, members, has about 8 million people at the time, uh, or you know, 40,000 churches. So we're talking you know, a broad cross-section of the population. The more important thing to remember is that most of these people um, even even if the lower estimates are true, that most of these people are m more highly educated than the rest of the population, they have uh, greater economic resources, and they tend to be in more positions of power, right? They tend to be running businesses and politics and these things. So even if um, the numbers don't indicate their importance, their social stature does. Now, most of the characters that I trace aren't the kind of the everyday Protestant churchgoers. I trace really a Protestant elite. It's mm -hmm. kind of a power elite of American Protestants. And there aren't that many of them, actually. The kinds of people who I talk about who are making these decisions 
I follow maybe a hundred people or so. Mm-hmm. They have um, overlapping responsibilities. So some of them lead the Federal Council of Churches. Some of them lead the Presbyterian denomination. Some of them lead the YMCA. But they are—they all know each other. They all work together. Um, they're uh, uh, an increasingly important group of elites that are really pushing um, people in directions that lots of everyday churchgoers are actually not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of uh, churchgoers, just people who go to attend church and maybe don't take part in denominational life, are going to be really uncomfortable with um, their uh, uh, minister going to Selma, right, and marching with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, they're going to be very uncomfortable with the kind of lobbying on behalf of um, a national healthcare system um, that a lot of these leaders are going to be doing. So there's also a rift that's taking place between the leadership of these Protestant churches and everyday churchgoers. So how do you get from there being these sort of um, movements for social justice, social change, the, these sort of Protestant liberal mo- movements we've been talking about, uh, to sort of this present day um, situation where at least what you see in the news mm-hmm. is more religion and politics, meaning uh, more of a very conservative bent on things. So you talked about this to some degree, but how could we sort of talk about this uh, straightforward? Is this just a revolt of the, the lay people against their, their pastors? Yeah, so uh, great question. Uh, there are two big things that happen, and they start happening in the 60s and 70s. One of them is you have, uh, in these ecumenical churches, uh, ecumenical denominations, young people start leaving in large numbers. Uh, the second thing is that um, interdenominational organizations, like the what, what is by then, by the 1960s, 1970s, known as the National Council of Churches, they have moved so far to the left that they're going to see a massive drop in support and funding. Right? So the question of why are these young people leaving, that's a complicated answer. We don't know exactly where they're going to. Um, but we do know that the kind of um, values that the liberal, the ecumenical Protestant churches were promoting um, encourage these young people to leave. Uh, so before, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, if you were a young person in the South, and you wanted to um, engage politically, right? these church groups might be your only option. You're not gonna go join the NAACP, you're not going to go and join um, you know, the Communist Party. Right? These just aren't options for you in the way that joining, mm-hmm. joining a church group, which is more or less doing the same thing, uh, would be an option. Um, now by the 60s and 70s, there are, there's a whole world of other institutions that you could join, human rights groups, SNCC, uh, CORE, right? other organizations that are more readily accessible to you. So what you find is that lots of people, lots of young people no longer have to join uh, these institutions. Um, and they just leave and many of them, uh, some percentage of them just never come back. Um, the other thing is that um, you know, when the National Council of Churches engages in these left-leaning policies, um, people start, stop giving money from these local churches to the national group. So all of this means is uh, while the evangelical churches are much better until very recently about hanging on to their young people. Um, what you have is a shrinking uh, uh, ecumenical um, set of institutions. Ecumenical denominations are getting smaller mm-hmm. and they're aging and they're able to get less and less money for their political programs. Mm-hmm. So um, all, all the same time, evangelical churches are growing. They're growing in prominence and stature. They're holding on to their young people. Um, and becoming more important politically. They're organizing, they're building up their institutions. All right, so we're running low on time. So I guess sort of uh, a last 
arc overarching sort of question what's the legacy of all these movements today how much of this is still with us how much uh has now sort of gone by the wayside sure so you do see some um versions of this today so in north carolina the united church of christ has re- recently filed a lawsuit to um to uh, uh overturn the ban on gay marriage uh in there um at the same time, you have the Moral Monday campaigns and kind of a small time, a small revival of Protestant liberalism in this country. Um, I would say that that's the main legacy because some of these demographic problems still persist. Right, the United Church of Christ, the average age of their members is something like 65. So I don't necessarily see this as a long-term consequence. Now, the two big consequences I see um, of the kinds of values that were being promoted by ecumenical Protestants in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. Um, These two are uh, really dependent on your perspective. On the one hand, you have the demographic collapse of these ecumenical institutions, right? The kinds of politics that uh, these leaders are engaging in uh, alienate much of their constituency, and the values they're promoting, let's say birth control, right, is causing their congregations to shrink, right? If you encourage women to use birth control to delay marriage, um, to take on careers that's going to uh, produce, that is going to cause uh, you know fewer children to be born, so fewer children are going to be raised in your denominations. Um, okay, so that's one way to look at it: is the demographic collapse of ecumenical Protestantism. On the other hand, the kind of values they're promoting are still very much with us today. Right, uh, uh, racism is by no means gone, um, but Jim Crow has been dismantled. Um, the state, it's, it's still very much in contest, but the state takes care of poor people and regulates the economy. So depending on your perspective, depending on what is the most important thing, is the most important thing the growth and size of these congregations, or is the most important thing the kinds of uh, liberal uh, values that these groups promoted over the last 40, 50, 60 years? Now, depending on how you answer that, you might see this as a tragedy, or you might see this as a uh, triumph. And that entirely depends on your perspective. All right, I think we're out of time, but it's been fascinating. Thanks a lot for being here. All right, thanks, Doug.